One of the early embarrassing moments for us was launching the company and realizing that we had picked a totally confusing name. So, you know, our name was Abe, our website was Hi Abe, everyone thought we were Hiabe. It was extremely confusing. We realized really quickly that we needed to rebrand the company. The problem is that we are licensed in 50 states. And so to rebrand the company, not only do you have to do all the normal rebranding work, but you have to go to 50 different departments of insurance. This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Spike Lipkin, CEO and co-founder of Newfront, a modern insurance platform that's raised $310 million in funding. Spike, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So I am originally from Colorado. I had the good fortune after college of getting exposed to the insurance industry. So I worked at Blackstone. And as a relatively early career person in financial services, I inherited the roles no one else wanted. And insurance for a business that we were building was on the list of highly important, but not really claimed by anyone else. So I had this experience of filling out mountains of paperwork, waiting months and months to get insurance quotes, getting them back, being entirely confused, feeling like they might as well be written in another language, asking around, and realizing that no one really understood the insurance that we were buying. So I got obsessed. You know, insurance is one of these products that is part of everything that we do. Every great discovery, every risk that humanity has taken, there's been this element of risk transfer. And it is a business that is totally antiquated. And so got excited about it. I joined a startup called Open Door that, that grew rapidly. And I was also exposed to insurance there and felt similar pain. So at some point, a friend of mine connected me to Gordon Wintraub. And Gordon is this incredible engineer. He'd been valedictorian at MIT and he built and sold a company to LinkedIn. His company was all around data aggregation and he had family in the insurance industry. And so we started working together and we saw this opportunity to build a new type of insurance brokerage, one where we combined technology with the best professional teams and built this high-tech, high-touch experience. And so that's how Newfront was born. That was 2017. We called the company Abe, like Honest Abe, the honest broker. And we picked the website HiAbe, so everyone pronounced it as Hiabe. Everyone was immediately confused by our branding. So we got a, a lesson pretty quickly in how not to brand your company. Um, and that was you know six years ago. We were two people in my living room. We'll cross 850 people this year, one of the 30 largest brokerages in the US, You know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. That's so been an exciting journey. And to take us back, let's talk about the early days of the insurance industry. So I, I could have this wrong. I'm pulling this from a book that I recently read, but I think it started in London with Lloyd's of London, correct? And they were sitting there in a coffee shop or something like that. I'll let you take it from here. You probably have a much oh, wow. understanding of that history. Very impressed. Yeah. So as I understand it, one of the earliest versions of insurance, and I, I think actually insurance, you know, it's, it's actually thousands of years old, but one of the earliest modern versions was this coffee shop called Edward Lloyd's Coffee Shop. And I guess what would happen is these ships, before they were going out to sea, the captain would come to the coffee shop and would essentially buy insurance. And the people sitting in the coffee shop would say, yeah, if you pay us these premiums, if there's a loss of your ship, we will make a payout. And the reason it was important is it allowed the captains and expedition leaders to raise money. 
because the folks who were investing in the expedition would know that if there was a loss of the ship, there would be some payout. And so that was sort of one of the earliest versions of the modern insurance markets. And Edward Lloyd's Coffee Shop became Lloyd's of London, which today is one of the largest global specialty insurance marketplaces. But then you can trace insurance really alongside the development of modern society. So, you know, when you think about every innovation in the world is made possible because inventors and innovators can take risk and they can take calculated risk and then they can transfer other risks away. So whether this is, you know, new technology or this is building, you know, the tallest buildings in the world or, you know, growing food. There are certain risks that we need to be able to abstract away as a society and transfer. And insurance plays that that really, really important role. Our vision as a company is de-risk human progress. And we think about everything we're doing each day around removing those risks so that we as a humanity can move forward. Nice. I love that. And what types of insurance do you sell on the platform? So we offer all the insurance products that businesses and individuals need. So from a business standpoint, that's all of these products that are either required by contract or by law. So that these are things like workers' compensation, directors and officers coverage, general liability coverage, cyber coverage. So a really long list of coverages. And then on the benefit side, we offer health insurance, all the ancillary benefits. We also help with retirement planning. And so it's basically all of the products that a business could need. For individuals, we often work with the executives of companies and help them with their homeowner's insurance or their auto insurance, their umbrella. And so what we find with our clients is they come to us as a partner because they want one stop and they want to be able to grow. And we've helped companies go from you know startup to large company to public company through to acquisition. A great example is Slack was one of our clients uh, from wow. the earliest days through their IPO, through their acquisition to Salesforce. And that's a really good example of how our teams have sort of scaled over time. Wow, that's super interesting. That must be cool to see that with Slack then as well. Absolutely. And, you know, across the board, I mean, we work with 20% of the unicorns in the US right now, 150 plus public companies, you know, sports teams. And so it's, it's incredible to have this client base that we are constantly learning from and growing with. And just to talk about your business model a little bit more, if I understand it, a big part of it's you're recruiting brokers in, right? So this is not a direct-to-consumer play. Do I have that right? That's right. So we grow in two ways. One is we obviously work with businesses and individuals who have insurance or have a need for insurance and will help serve them in a high-tech and high-touch manner. And then we also have realized that we are a very attractive platform to the professionals who are at the top of their game and want to give their clients a better experience. And so we also grow by attracting those professionals to come join us and build their client base on our platform. Mm, got it. And what's the main competition? I believe I saw in another interview, you said there's three companies that really control the market and they were started 100 years before the internet. Is that true? Yeah, you're, so you're who good. are those companies? We have a lot of competitors. There are three large companies in our space, but a handful of very large public companies. Actually, I think if the three largest companies date their roots back to 100 years before the internet, I believe the top five brokers represent a quarter trillion dollars of market cap. Last year, brokers earned $100 billion in commissions in the US alone. So it's a massive, very competitive market with extremely well-funded, profitable competitors. We are playing a different game though. 
So, you know, our competitors are businesses that have incredible professionals, but have not invested heavily in technology. And when I look around, I see every aspect of our lives moving online. And that doesn't mean that humans are going to go away, but it means that there are things that computers are really good at and things that humans are really good at. And the future is going to be this balance between the two, right? I mean, think of your financial life. You know, you probably have an online bank account. You probably have you know, the ability to file your taxes online, that doesn't mean that you don't still go to a tax account. And if your taxes are complicated, it also doesn't mean that you don't work with a financial advisor. But for basic tasks, these transactional tasks, technology takes over. The same thing is going to happen in the insurance industry. So we think that the professional is still going to play this really important role, but technology is going to eliminate that bottom, you know, half of what professionals do today. And that really, really transactional work. And I think it's going to lead to these more meaningful and better client experiences. And when the brokers work with you, are they doing it under their own independent brand? Or is your brand the forefront there? Is the end customer seeing that brand as well? The end customer is seeing that brand as well. So everyone's part of the new front team. Mm-hmm. And we're building what we believe to be one of the iconic brands in our industry. We still have a lot of work to do. We're still in early days, but we're very focused on building up that brand over time. And it must be difficult to battle against the position that a lot of these big firms have. Like I'm thinking of like State Farm and like their marketing, like they very much have like positioned themselves as like, I feel like it's like a pillar of the community. Uh, what's their slogan? Like, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Like they've really made that like push. And that's like, I've probably known that slogan since I was like nine, right? Like you just like heard it your entire life. So what's it like battling, you know, these big established brands like that? So, so much of this business is a word of mouth business, and it's all about obsessing over the details and really nailing the client experience for the clients who are in front of you, because Mm -hmm. those business owners, those general counsels, those CFOs, they often know other business owners and general counsels and CFOs. And so, so much of our business we find is reputation-based, right? So Mm -hmm. some of our professionals have worked with, you know, large technology companies, and then the finance teams of those companies go on and become the CFOs and controllers at you know early stage startups. And they realize, oh, I worked with this, this person in the past, I'll bring them back in. And so we're able to build that reputation client by client and grow very rapidly through that approach. It's really about just serving clients and, and building that word of mouth. And then with these brokers that you bring on, is it more like the next generation of brokers where like they're like very comfortable with technology and they're you know frustrated that where they are now doesn't have technology? Or are you bringing on some people who have maybe been in the industry for a long time? They're used to you know doing things an old way and you have to convince them to embrace technology. What's like that typical profile? Yeah, it's all of the above. I mean, certainly if you are early career in the insurance industry and you're staring yeah. down 30 years of paperwork, yeah. And there's an option that has you doing more of what you love, which is getting in front of clients, and less of what you don't love, which is filling out paperwork. Mm-hmm. We're really appealing. But we also have folks who are joining who are less focused on technology, but just more focused on how do I build the absolute best experience for our clients? You know, we admire a lot of the really seamless consumer apps where when you're using them, you're not really thinking about the technology. You're thinking about what you need to get done, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, pressing a button and having a car show up or you know, being able to book a room in a really cool city that feels really personalized. Those are these experiences that are technology driven, but ultimately provide an outcome in the world. And that's how we think about technology. We have plenty of clients that, you know, whether it's in construction or agriculture, 
that, you know, are not in front of a desk all day. They don't necessarily have access to a computer and that's perfectly okay. And the professionals who work for them are often doing business, you know, driving around in a truck all day. And we are okay with that as well. We can accommodate both. But I think great technology should feel seamless and it should feel like you're able to deliver an outcome. You don't have to be focused on technology to use it. And could you just paint a picture for those of us who are not in the insurance space? What's it like if you're at a traditional, let's say, a legacy brokerage? You know, what's my life like? And you know, how much time is really spent on paperwork and manual work and things like that that don't exist when they move over to you? Yeah. So when you think about a brokerage, there's the strategic client-facing function, but then there's sort of this data and payment processing function. And by that, I mean all of the data associated with the business needs to get pulled into the brokerage. The brokerage needs to put it into these forms and attachments and then get it out to all the carriers. And then the carriers come back with questions. And so there's this back and forth over email. And then the carriers will issue quotes. And every quote is in a different format with terms that are referred to differently. And so then insurance professionals will spend hours and hours comparing these things and putting the other proposal for the client and the client reviews it and has questions. So there's this really interesting data processing element. And what we have been building now for six years is essentially a data model. How do we represent the world and all the exposure data associated with businesses in a structured manner? And so how do we pull that data in, whether it's through a web form, whether it's through third-party data, and then share it with carriers in a really efficient way? And then when carriers come back to us, how do we pull data out of the documents that they share with us and get it back to the client in a manner that they understand. So that's really high level. I'll give you some cool examples. So one of the things we recently built was the ability to take in quotes. So we go to the carriers, the carriers issue eight different quotes, and each quote is you know 10 plus pages long, and it's a price subject to lots of limits and supplements and endorsements and exclusions, and there are eight of them. And each one of them is 10 pages long. And we are using large language models now to pull all of the data off of those quotes and instantly build a side-by-side comparison. So carrier A, B, C, D, E, F, G, here's what each one of them offered and how, here's how each component compares. And then we can quickly go to the client and say, here are the different options. Here's what we recommend. Here's what you'd be getting if you pay different amounts. And so that's a concrete example. The other thing that's really interesting there is if you can collect this data in a structured manner, you can use it to help clients make really good decisions. So to give you another example, as we are collecting data about which carriers have appetite for which clients, we're also beginning to map the market's appetite for risk, right? So if you are you know, a technology company operating in a certain space, we will begin to know which carriers will have appetite for working with you. And that becomes really valuable because as a broker, part of your job is finding the absolute best carrier for your clients, and that can change mm-hmm. over time. So there's this huge lever for data that exists in every brokerage, but the legacy brokerages run on old school systems and lots of pen and paper. And so it can be a lot harder for them to perform that function in an efficient manner. Mm, that makes sense. And then from a regulatory perspective, do you have the same headaches that like a lemonade has? I know lemonade had just a lot of regulatory challenges because of their model. And I think that's because they were going direct to consumer, but you don't have that, right? Because it's, you're following a more traditional brokerage model. So we work closely with regulators. We are not doing anything innovative from a regulatory standpoint. Probably for the, are, probably safe as that. Yeah. We're licensed in 50 states. We think that the regulations and working with the departments of insurance is really important 
And so that has not been an issue for us, but it's something we pay very close attention to. You know, one of our earliest hires was a general counsel and chief compliance officer. He'd been at a large insurance carrier, really understood you know, how insurance regulation works. And then, you know, it continues to be an area of focus for us. Makes sense. We just had Kevin Buskey on. I don't know if you know Kevin from right. uh, from Guideline. Yeah, similar size of uh, companies, and he was saying the same thing. His first hire was general counsel, just to navigate that complexity of the the environment that they're in. So that's that's interesting that that was an early hire for you as well. It makes sense in these businesses where you're providing something mission critical for your clients. You have to have everything exactly right from the start, and so we've been very focused on that. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Inc, we talk a little bit about growth and you know any numbers that you're okay with sharing just to help, I think, the audience and founders listening in to like understand the scale that you're operating at. Obviously, I mentioned funding 331. That's a big number. That's a lot. But what else can you share with us just so we can understand the scale and the, the success that you're seeing? Sure. So we are roughly in the top 30 insurance brokerages in the U.S. from a size standpoint. I think I mentioned earlier, we work with about 20% of the U.S. unicorns. We will sell on the order of billions of dollars insurance this year. And, you know, we're growing rapidly. From a productivity standpoint, we find that the brokers on our platform are materially more productive than the average and than, than comparable platforms. We're very focused on that. We think that the proof in what we're doing is in how productive are brokers? How efficient are we at transacting? How are we retaining business? And so those are some of the metrics that we look at as well. And what do you attribute to your success? Because I feel like you're not just dealing with technology companies and startups that are you know trying to throw their hat in the ring. You also have a lot of legacy players. And in every neighborhood, you probably have someone who would be considered a competitor. So what have you gotten right? How are you able to rise above the noise, you know, penetrate the market in the way that you were and, and see this kind of success? I think fundamentally, it, it starts with people. And so it's about hiring the right people. And those people can be insurance professionals, technologists, and then building a culture where they work really well together. I think that mm -hmm. as you look out 10 years, there are not going to be businesses that are technology companies and non-technology companies. I think there are going to be successful businesses and non-successful businesses. And so what I think we've done right is build one of those cultures that pulls those different groups together. And then because we're building our own technology, our feedback loop is really fast, right? So we build something and we really quickly try to get it in the hands of professionals and their clients so that we can get quick feedback. So these feedback loops at Newfront are really fast, right? If you think about that relative to a SaaS firm that is building software for brokers, right? They build something, they have a formal launch, they ship it, they maybe get feedback at their annual you know, customer advisory board conference, and then they ship out some new features and it's this long feedback loop right? We're doing that every day, right? So I'm in our San Francisco office today. And if I look out, I can see engineers sitting next to experts in DNO and, you know, account managers on our PNC team, right? That's how you build something that's really special and build this iterative feedback loop. And I think that's been a big part of what's made us successful. It's focusing on the people and building the right culture. 
And on the topic of success, you know, I think founders have like three big moments that they really aim for. And that's, you know, becoming a billion dollar company. I think that's something most founders, you know, at least in tech, that's what you desire to do. Taking a company public and, you know, having an exit. Those are like the three things. And you've achieved one of those. I think what I read online was a $2.2 billion valuation. So tell us, what was it like when you achieved that milestone? Was it significant for you? Did it matter or was it just another day for you? Oh, man. I don't even really remember when that happened. It was not a significant milestone. I think our focus has always been if we can build the best culture, attract the best people and take care of clients, the rest sort of takes care of itself. So, you know, some of the moments that stick out to me are, you know, when we brought on our first client, um, we were over the moon. It was, I think, a four person startup. I think they paid us $700 a year and our commission was, you know, probably all of 80 bucks. Um, But I just remember being over the moon about that. And then recruiting one of the first people to our team and having that person sign an offer and join us. That was so exciting. So those are the moments that really stand out to me. But from a funding or, or valuation standpoint, don't get me wrong, it's stuff that we consider important because everyone at New Front's a shareholder, but they're not moments that uh, that stand out in particular. And if I were to you know Google your name, which I did for this interview, I just see success. There's all you know the positive stuff out there. There's some great interviews. There's you know articles about the funding. But I always like to ask about the moments that maybe haven't been covered and those near death experiences that you know I think just in the media in general they don't get talked about nearly enough. You only see like the glory. You don't see any of like the pain. And I, I think it's always important for founders to to hear those stories. So. Do you have any crazy near-death experiences that you could tell us about or just any crazy stories from the early days that highlight some of the struggles that you may have faced? Oh, man, we've made every mistake in the book. And I think what I'm proud of is not that we get it right every time, but that we are really fast at learning from our mistakes. We don't make the same mistake twice. So, you know, one of the early embarrassing moments for us was launching the company and realizing that we had picked a totally confusing name. So, you know, our name was Abe, our website was Hi Abe, everyone thought we were Hiabe. It was extremely confusing. We realized really quickly that we needed to rebrand the company. The problem is that we are licensed in 50 states. And so to rebrand the company, not only do you have to do all the normal rebranding work, but you have to go to 50 different departments of insurance, update your license. And then we had all these carrier partners. So we had, you know, probably two dozen carrier partners. And so we had to update all of our contracts there. So that was an embarrassing moment. We realized that, you know, really, really quickly. We've made you know plenty of other mistakes. I think in general, we have a culture that is definitely focused on delivering results. That's one of our values. But we also treat these mistakes as you know extremely expensive learnings. And so we've learned from them and, and increasingly gotten better. But I think at, we're still today at much larger scale. Our tolerance for risk is less, but we're still learning each day. And we have a team that's patient. And we figured out how to take calculated risk. I mean, even in a regulated and important business, you still need to be able to take creative risks. And so that doesn't mean that we will ever do anything that takes a risk with our clients, but we're often coming together as a team. So for example, we had our hackathon a couple of weeks ago, which was a cool way for our engineers to really quickly ship things and then have our professional team try them out before they went out to clients. So we figured out how to still be really, really agile in a more regulated industry. In in those early days, did you get product market fit immediately or did it take some time? Can you share some you know, insights on that journey to finding product market fit? So in a business where you're selling into an existing market, you, you know, really quickly can get clients. And I think the question then is, can you serve them in a way that's different? 
And so really quickly, I mean, within a couple months of starting the company, we were starting to see clients. And then it was, well, can we build a differentiated experience through technology for those clients? And that sort of happened over time through a really, really iterative process. We were maniacally focused on serving our clients and serving our team and getting just constant feedback. And I think I was on you know, most of our early sales calls. My co-founder, Gordon, was on most of our early service calls. And so it was this just constant feedback loop that helped us tune the product and improve it over time. And from a positioning perspective, you guys don't seem super aggressive. Uh, and I'm sure that's intentional. And I think that's often what you see with challenger brands, which I think you are a challenger brand, but you're not super aggressive. And, and that's most commonly what challenger brands are doing. So was that a decision internally to you know tone it down and not go on the attack too aggressively against the legacy companies in this space? Yeah. I mean, we are so much more focused on ourselves than our competitors. This is a massive market. You know, mm-hmm. many folks can succeed at the same time. And we're not disrupting. We're modernizing, right? We don't think insurance needs to be disrupted. We think that the broker plays a really important role, but we do think it's a business that needs to be modernized. And so I think probably a lot of what you're alluding to is language around modernizing versus language around, you know, disrupting and changing. There's a lot that really works well in the insurance industry and there's a lot that can be updated. And so that's where we're focused. And as you've gone down this path, and hopefully you don't take this offensive, but to become an insurance nerd, I think that I uh, you know, say that kindly, but as you've gone down this path, what's like the most surprising fact that you've learned about the insurance industry that someone like me or you know, a random person listening may not know? Well, you had a, a really good understanding of the backstory of insurance. I think the thing that's been so fascinating to me is how intertwined in every aspect of society insurance is, right? So you know, every physical asset that you can look at, insurance touches, right? Increasingly, as value has entered the digital world, insurance now exists in the digital world. And so I think that is what's been so interesting to me. I mean, the moon landing involved, you know, bespoke insurance products, rocket launches involved bespoke insurance products. Um, so I think it's just the far-reaching nature of the products that we offer. Society would literally ground to a halt without these products. But for some reason, they haven't. That narrative doesn't get across. And the insurance industry at large doesn't necessarily get the reputation it deserves for being part of driving society forward or increasing the skids of commerce. And so I think that's been the most surprising thing. No, I was just in uh, the lovely city state of Omaha, Nebraska last weekend for oh, the Warren nice. Buffett event. And uh, I just wanted to go and you know, he's getting up there. Warren Buffett's getting up there. So I figured there's not that many more chances to go watch him speak. And he talked a lot about insurance. So as you know, he yes. loves the insurance space and kept going on and on about the market. So. I can see that, but agreed, it doesn't seem like the most sexy industry. You know, I think when you talk about insurance, I think some people just don't get it at all. You know, like I buy a lot of insurance, I spend a lot of money on insurance, but I don't get how it works. I don't understand anything about it, which is like kind of interesting, like the role it plays in your life, yet, you know, nothing about how it actually works. I think that's very interesting. I agree. I mean, it's one of these products that everyone needs, it's mission critical. Most people don't understand and most people don't like the experience of buying. And I think that's why we're so excited about the opportunity here. Yeah. And anytime I've bought insurance, it's painful. Like not to shit on Geico, but same thing with Geico. And I you know, bought through them. They wanted me, I had to fill out a form and then I had to call a number. And I remember just going through that process and thinking like how barbaric it was to have to call a phone number to, uh, to get served. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement there. We agree. <laughs> now. Let's talk a little bit about money. So as we mentioned, $310 million in funding. 
What have you learned from fundraising? And you've done a number of rounds. What have you learned there that you wish you had known you before you started fundraising? And what tactical advice would you have to share with founders listening in? So we've we've been really lucky to work with you know amazing investors who are more than investors. I mean, to give you an example, when Founder Sun led our Series A, Kevin Hart said that if we let him lead the round, he would meet with us once a week for the next ten years, and so we would go to his house every Sunday night at 8 p.m. and we'd bring this little sheet with all of our metrics and we'd sit down with Kevin and sometimes his wife, Julia, would, would join. Um, Kevin and Julia co-founded Eventbrite and at the time they were they were just going public. Mm-hmm. And so it was this just amazing learning experience. And so I think what I took away from that is these are very long-term relationships and what matters more than anything is not the brand on the door or the valuation, but finding the right person. I think in almost every round we've raised, we have not necessarily taken the highest price. We've found the right person, the right partner that we want to work with for the long term. And so I think it's all about the person you're working with, the partner, and and finding someone that you want to have a long-lasting relationship with. The other sort of approach we've had to fundraising is mm-hmm. we're either fundraising or not fundraising. I think that some founders will spend a lot of time meeting with investors and having coffees. And while that's great, I think what's a better approach is meeting with your team and meeting with your clients. And if you do a really good job there, it makes it a lot easier to fundraise. And so we have not tended to focus much on fundraising outside of you know the core inflection moments where we're out raising money. It's a different approach. I know that some founders love building these long-lasting relationships and having lots of coffees and whiteboard sessions with investors between rounds. It's just not the approach we've taken. Well, seems like it's working for you. So that's good. And when it comes to choosing the right partners and the right you know, investors, what are some like red flags that founders should be afraid of? If they you know, are meeting with VCs and they, they see them say something or do something, what are some of those red flags they could maybe watch for? I don't know if it's red flags necessarily, but we've tried to optimize for people who we think really fit our business, right? And I think that in any business, there are going to be pros and cons. And you know, so we've looked for investors that, want to work with a business like ours. You know, for example, at Newfront, we are building a business that will be massive, extremely profitable, and extremely impactful, but it's never going to be a software business, right? We earn money and commissions, and that's okay. And so we've found investors that want to see us build a business like that. And we've sort of steered clear of investors who look at the world through the narrow lens of, you know, I only want to back this type of business. I think that's one element. And then in each funding round, we've sort of optimized for something different and looked for investors that, that meet that box. So, you know, early on when we were just starting the company, we wanted to work with a serial entrepreneur. And so, you know, Kevin had built Eventbrite and he built a money remittance business called XOM, Zoom before that. And so, you know, we were really lucky to work with him. Um, and then as the company scaled and we were learning about, you know, how to build a scaled company, we optimized for working with Max at Meritech, who had seen a lot of great companies scale and understood best practices. And we wanted to be able to take best practices from other companies. And then as we got bigger and raised our most recent round, we optimized for working with investors who understood how we compared to the public markets, um, had seen sort of best-in-class late-stage companies, how they operated. And so we optimized for working with Paul from Goldman Sachs and Matt from B Capital. And so at each stage, we sort of looked for something slightly different. And if you reflect on the journey, you know, since day one of building, if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice that you wish you had known before you started, what would that advice be? 
it's all about the people. I mean, even when you're building a technology mode, even when you're building data mode, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it comes down to if you have the right strategy, can you find the absolute best people in the world and then motivate them through your vision, your myth, and your values mm-hmm. to join you? And so, you know, we always spent a great deal of time recruiting and focused on culture. And I'm glad we did that. It's an area that we will continue to spend time. And I think in any business, it's the job of, of the founders and, and the executives to find and retain the absolute best people. So I think it's all about the people. And did that come naturally for you? Were you just naturally good at culture building and team building? Or did you have to really learn and develop and, and master those skills? We studied it. I mean, we looked at how great organizations were run and, you know, read all the books we could. And then, you know, it didn't just come from us. It came from the team that we recruited. I mean, part of the great thing about recruiting incredible people is they all come with good ideas. You know, when I look at how our companies run today, our values, those have been shaped by other people as much as they've been shaped by me. And I think that's, you know, the benefit of of having these amazing people around. And final question, since I know we're up on time, let's zoom out into the future. So maybe three to five years from today, can you just paint a picture? What's the company going to look like? Sure. So today, the biggest thing we were talking about is AI. And we have spent years and years building a data model, building infrastructure so that we can take advantage of these large language models. And so I think the future will look very different from where it is today. So it will look like a client experience where the sharing of information process is a lot more seamless. And that might be sharing unstructured documents with us and we will parse them. It might be tapping into your core system of the record to pull information out so that we can give the carrier an accurate snapshot. And then where I think it gets really exciting is helping our clients make better decisions. And so that's helping them think through various scenarios in their business and how insurance would respond, forecasting. And that's where having this data and having these AI models is going to be extremely impactful. So I think the entire process of buying and managing insurance is going to change. The other thing that we haven't talked about yet is that I think there will be the opportunity for brokers like Newfront who have great client relationships and lots of data to start mm-hmm. partnering with carriers and reinsurers to build unique products for their clients. Mm-hmm. So I think there will also be this product innovation. I mean, today, insurance products are very standardized and you know they're on a mostly on a one-year renewal period. And I think a lot of that will change and these products will start melding because businesses have changed, right? And the types of mm-hmm. exposures have changed. So I think three to five years in the future, the client experience looks really different and the products that clients are buying have also adapted. And are there plans to go international at some point, or is that just like a whole nother beast when you move into these different markets? So we, we operate internationally. Our president is chairman of the Worldwide Broker Network. So we work with mm-hmm. a, a network of brokers all around the world. And it's actually a really great model. So if we have a client in the US that has a presence in another country, you know, mm-hmm. Ireland, Germany, we are able to tap the best in class brokers mm-hmm. in those regions. And so it's a really effective model for companies that want to scale globally. We're finding that many of our clients, like us, want to be able to tap into talent all over the world. And so we actually can serve clients everywhere in the world. Wow, that's amazing. Super cool. All right, Spike, we're going to have to wrap here. This was super fun. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? So check out our website, newfront.com. We also are pretty active on LinkedIn. So definitely give us a follow on LinkedIn. And then we have a growing Twitter presence and our handle is NewFrontHQ. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, Spike. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it.